When Kamala Harris accepted her nomination as vice president of the United States, she said, while I may be the first woman in this office, I will not be the last. March is Women's History Month. And in honor of our first vice president and all the firsts in politics, business, arts, and more, we're partnering with Stitcher to highlight the remarkable female first who paved the way. Download the Stitcher app and listen to podcasts that honor historic first and center women's voices, such as Encyclopedia Womanica, Ordinary Equality, Unladylike, and By the Book. You can find Stitcher for free in the App Store or at stitcher.com slash download. And that is why there was such an urgency to explain to people, you are essentially being lied to. You are not being told the truth about what these these laws are. So in Texas, there were a series of regulations that were almost so impossible to meet that they cut the number of clinics down. I think it's fair to say they were a fraction. So Texas is one of the largest states in, in the United States. Many women were located in areas that were six, seven, eight, nine hours by car from the nearest abortion clinic. Um, and, and that had deadly consequences. We literally saw people trying to self-abort. We saw people, you know, taking medications. We saw people trying to self-harm. Um, and all of that was, was documented by people who were watching. This is something central to a woman's life, to her dignity. It's a decision that she must make for herself. From Kansas, Kentucky and North Carolina, dedicated women marched. Abortion is fast becoming the new political fault line. Alabama's governor has signed the nation's strictest abortion ban into law. The Human Life Protection Act outlaws the procedure except when the mother's life is at risk. This bill is not about pro-life or the right to life. This bill is about control. We will not go back. And we, the people of the United States of America, documented or undocumented, are having abortions, legal or not. This court will never stop us. We've previously talked about how the anti-choice movement slowly but surely reframed abortion, making it an increasingly charged debate. Around the time of Roe versus Wade, abortion rights were not necessarily as contentious as they are now. But the anti-choice movement systematically changed the conversation. The orchestration of the anti-choice movement goes beyond its rhetoric. The legal challenges that the antis have presented make up a sophisticated, systemic attack on people's rights. Their key strategy? Trap laws. This is Ordinary Equality, and I'm Kate Kelly, human rights attorney and feminist activist. And I'm Jamia Wilson, a writer, editor, and feminist activist. Today we're talking about how the anti-choice movement has successfully waged a slow and deliberate war against abortion access. First things first, what is a trap law? Here's Don Porter, who you heard at the top of the show. Don is a lawyer turned filmmaker. She made a documentary about abortion access and trap laws called Trapped. Trap laws are targeted uh, regulations of abortion providers. So trap is the, the acronym that has been coined by 
reproductive rights activist in order to identify a collection of efforts to regulate women's choice. And the hallmark of trap laws, which makes them so pernicious, is that on their face, they appear reasonable. If you say to somebody, oh, a doctor should have admitting privileges um, to a hospital in case that there's an emergency, that seems reasonable. Until you know that um, in states like Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, the hospitals will not grant admitting privileges to doctors. And so if that requirement is allowed to stand, it would have effectively wiped out all abortion access in several states across the United States. So while some abortion regulations attempt to target pregnant people, restricting when, why, or how they can seek abortions, other laws aim directly at the facilities that provide this medical service. It's a subtle difference with a devastating effect on abortion access. Dawn's interest in trap laws was piqued when she was working on a different documentary that took her to the Deep South. I was actually shooting interviews for another project, and I was in Mississippi, and I like to read the local papers, and I read that there was only one abortion clinic in the entire state. And that just was jaw-dropping to me. I you know, felt like I was a person who followed the news. I follow things that I'm, I care about, and I care about reproductive rights. I always have. So I thought, if I don't know that, and I'm a person who follows this, I bet a lot of other people don't know that this is happening too, or not enough people. Don asked a colleague to call up the clinic to see if she could go visit. The clinic said yes. And I met Dr. Parker, and then it was like game over. I was like, wow, here's a really interesting character. He's a, a Southern former evangelical black abortion provider, you know, who flies in on his weekends. That's really interesting. In addition to a good lead character, Dawn had something else on her side, a deadline. I will say the one thing about Trap that is different from every other project I've done is that the urgency was so palpable. Like you, like I kind of default to my legal roots, so I always kind of check in with the legal peeps first. And so I met Nancy Northup, who's the head of Center for Reproductive Rights, And she said, one of these cases is going to the Supreme Court and it's going to happen in the next year. And so it kind of like, it felt like this race against time. I wanted this film to be part of the conversation as the court was hearing their arguments and not to say like, oh, people are going to pay attention to me, but being able to have this film explain in ways that I think were were getting lost um, and so that the activists could use it. So I don't consider myself an activist. I am a filmmaker, but I'm very happy if the activists, after I'm done with what I want to say, if they want to use the film in any way that they want to, like, that's a real success. If Roe versus Wade protected abortion access, how could trap laws gain legal standing? To understand how the strategy got its start, we need to talk about another Supreme Court decision a 1992 case called Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania versus Casey. In 1988 and 1989, the Pennsylvania legislature changed its abortion laws to require that people wait 24 hours before getting the procedure, that minors get consent of at least one parent before getting the procedure, and that married women were required to notify their husbands prior to the procedure. Abortion clinics and physicians challenged the amendments, 
saying that they prevented people from getting abortions, access to which was ruled a requirement in Roe v. Wade. A federal court of appeals upheld everything except the requirement of a wife to tell her husband. Then, the case kept climbing all the way to the Supremes. To understand more about the case, we spoke with Talcott Camp, Chief Legal and Strategy Officer at the National Abortion Federation. Talcott moved to NAF after working at the ACLU for almost 25 years, providing litigation, policy work, and compliance advice for abortion providers. A lot of things conspired to bring about the, the world of, of Casey and, and, and what we've been living with ever since. So Casey was, in some ways, a very beautiful decision, right? Parts of it really hammer home the importance of this decision to the people who have to make it and the importance of leaving that decision with the people who have to make it, the people whose bodies and lives are in question. Um, But having said that, Casey demoted the right to decide what to do with a pregnancy in the sense that it provides lesser protection rather than that strict scrutiny, highest protection that Roe provided. The Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision, it's undue burden is the analysis. It is still fundamental rights protection. Let's not sneeze at that. It's very important. But it is it, it does give states more leeway. It gives states more leeway to regulate abortion um, much more than it should. And as we've seen quite recently, states are eager to use the leeway they have under Casey to regulate abortion out of existence by pretending to pass health regulations. States are pretending to pass statutes and regulations to protect the health of patients seeking abortion care, but it's completely disingenuous. These are nothing but clinic shutdown laws parading as health regulations. They are designed to shut clinics, and they do. The Supreme Court upheld the federal court decision and introduced a new standard for evaluating the legality of abortion restrictions called undue burden. Here's Amani Gandhi, lawyer, journalist, and host of the Boom Lawyered podcast on what that means. The undue burden test says that a restriction or a regulation cannot place a substantial obstacle in the path of a person seeking an abortion. And if it does so, then it's an undue burden on the right to an abortion and it's unconstitutional. So that sets up this very mushy test where what what is an undue burden anyway, right? What is a substantial obstacle anyway? It's very subjective. It doesn't particularly mean anything. And it can change. The substantiality of the obstacle can change depending upon the justice, right? Some justice, like if you take, for example, um, the Fifth Circuit ruling in the Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt case, uh, was it Dolly G who said something like, well, requiring a person to drive 250 miles to get an abortion isn't necessarily a, a substantial obstacle because it depends on whether or not the highways are congested. You know, I mean, that's just just it's a it's a traffic decision, which is just absolutely obscene. If you're requiring a person to drive four hours each way to get an abortion, that seems to me to be a pretty objective, substantial obstacle. But under the Casey test, everything's subjective. That's where we are now. That's sort of the rubric we've been operating under since 1992. This undue burden test, whether or not a particular law, a waiting period or 
uh, uh, an admitting privileges law, anything that a state can concoct, the question becomes, is it an undue burden on the right to an abortion? This undue burden test came back into public focus recently when the Supreme Court went out of their way to reinstate an FDA requirement that people seeking medication abortions must pick up the pills in a medical facility rather than having them delivered. We've already covered just how safe these pills are, and most people take them at home anyway. So it's pretty clear how arbitrary this rule is. It is to anyone with two brain cells to rub together. But, you know, when it comes to anti-choice judges, it gives them an out, right? It gives them, a, uh, they can conceivably say, yeah, we don't think that this isn't a substantial obstacle. It's an obstacle, sure. But is it substantial? Like, you can leave the house and go get this care. It's not, you know what I mean? It's not like you're being chained to your bed or what have you, even though some people are. And technically, it's a pandemic, so everyone should be indoors. The idea of undue burden provides too much wiggle room. Stacks of unnecessary regulations are now being applied not just to the people seeking abortions, but to the abortion providers, too. The brilliant thing about trap laws is that they are an incredible example of wolves in sheep's clothing. They're really, really hard to argue against in theory. The idea is that these regulations are designed to make sure that abortions are being done safely. They are described in ways that sound obviously good. It's an incredible rhetorical mask for devastatingly harmful legislation. Don Porter spoke to that. So that is what the abortion rights activists were facing, trying to explain why we don't want more safety regulations. And, you know, a lot of people, people don't like to think about abortion. It's something that, you know, for some people might be a choice. It's never somebody's favorite choice. It's not Christmas. Okay. No one wakes up and says, I want to go have an abortion today. Wouldn't that be fun? Because of that, you know, avoidance of something, it's like you avoid it until you need it, right? It's like the dentist. You avoid it until you need it. Though these laws seem reasonable at first when taken individually, it's clear how burdensome they can become when so many regulations stack up. Here are some examples that really exist. The regulations on abortion providers shall be as follows. The facility must be compliant with rules mandated for ambulatory surgical centers. Thus, all operating rooms shall have a clean floor area of at least 240 square feet. There must be 50 square feet of storage area per operating room. The surgical suite must have its own janitor's closet equipped with a service sink. Public corridors must have a width of no less than four feet, while corridors for patient transport must be eight feet in width. The facility must be located no more than 30 miles or 15 minutes from the nearest hospital. Providers must work directly with this hospital to obtain admitting privileges. The abortion provider must share a pamphlet regarding the connection between abortion and future miscarriages. It's all medically inaccurate, of course. All of these rules just for one of the safest and simplest medical procedures out there. The reality is these laws are bad for people's health. Here's Talc at camp again. They do nothing to protect patients' health. Indeed, by shutting down clinics and making it harder to access the care, by creating geographic barriers, they prevent or delay people in accessing the care that they need. And that, of course, does everything to harm patient health. First, 
If somebody wants to terminate a pregnancy, forcing them to carry to term is a terrible thing for their health. Of course, their emotional health, but their physical health as well, because safe legal abortion care is far safer than remaining pregnant and giving birth. But second, even if, if what happens is that a patient is delayed, that's really not good. A person who has made up their mind to end a pregnancy should get all the support and respect we can provide in effectuating that decision as quickly as they want to. The risks associated with abortion increase as pregnancy advances. And part of that is that just pregnancy is dangerous. Just remaining pregnant longer puts a person at risk. If somebody wants to have a baby, you know, God love them and we should love them and give them much more love and honor and respect and support than we do. But if somebody has decided that what's right for their life is to end that pregnancy, they deserve the same love, honor, respect, and support. Trap law proponents say that these regulations have been put into place in order to help those getting the procedure. I mean, you've got regulations all over the nation, many states all over the nation saying, in order to provide abortion care, well, those statutes don't say abortion care, um, but in, in, order to provide abor- in order to provide abortions, you have to be a physician. You have to be an obstetrician gynecologist. You have to have uh, admitting privileges at a local hospital. You have to X, Y, Z, fill in the blank, right? Are there any such laws that apply to the provision of miscarriage management? You bet there aren't. The treatment, whether it's medication or using instruments to evacuate the uterus, the medical treatment is identical. But in point of fact, an induced abortion is a safer situation because it's controlled. A miscarriage is you know, an uncontrolled, spontaneous event. So if you look at the statistics, the risks involved with different pregnancy outcomes, the safest one is induced abortion. The second safest one is miscarriage. And the riskiest one is giving birth. But in any event, if, if you look at that fact that um, states are targeting induced abortion care, saying, for example, you have to be only a physician, but, but other clinicians uh, can provide miscarriage management, which is terrific. I am in no sense knocking clinicians who aren't MDs at all. They are fantastic and provide wonderful care and, and their greater and greater participation is such an important part of health equity, solving our you know healthcare deserts, providing access to all kinds of medical care for people. And of course, while they're, you know, as we embrace them, as you know, being fully able to provide miscarriage management for many, many patients who miscarry, of course they can provide abortion care. Of course they can provide abortion care safely. If they couldn't, then they couldn't provide miscarriage management safely either. In some cases, the restrictive abortion laws actually make it more difficult to get the best possible care for miscarriages. There was a study in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it shows that for uh, patients undergoing miscarriage who want medication management, the sort of common uh, drug is misoprostol, if you, which is commonly available, if you use mifepristone as an adjunct, actually the patients, you know, the, the, just the outcome is better, you know, fewer side effects, quicker resolution. But of course, mifepristone which is approved as an abortifacient, is just not as readily available because of the FDA's overregulation and misregulation of mifepristone. So in addition to abortion patients getting just, you know, jerked around in the States and jerked around by the FDA, you've got miscarriage patients 
equally um, mistreated because of anti-abortion sentiment. In 2016, the Supreme Court looked at two laws in Texas, one of which required local admitting privileges for doctors and hospitals nearby in order to be able to administer abortions. Here's Talcott again. In 2016, when there were eight justices on the court because uh, Justice Scalia had died and had not yet been replaced, um, in a 5-3 decision, the Supreme Court looked at the um, Texas Admitting Privileges Law and said, well, this has, you know, extremely marginal, if any, health benefit. And gosh, sure does pack a wallop in terms of shutting down clinics and therefore, you know, uh, restricting access to care. That's an undue burden. Fast forward to 2020. A similar case was brought when basically the exact same laws were passed in Louisiana. That case struck down the law in a 5-4 decision, right? And and remember, Justice Ginsburg was still alive at the time, so she was a member of the five votes to strike down the law. But essentially, the deciding vote was Justice Roberts's, right? And he said, I was in the dissent in 2016 in Hall Women's Health. And I think I was right then, right? But now, this is the same law, stare decisis. Same law, we made this decision already, okay? So that's very scary, right? What that says to me is that there are a terrifying number of votes on the Supreme Court now to uphold laws that pretend to advance patient health as the admitting privileges requirement in Texas did in 2016 and the Louisiana admitting privileges requirement did in 2020. They pretend to advance patient health, but in fact do nothing but shut down clinics. As we spoke about a few weeks back, the antis have long been organizing against abortion. On one front, they waged a long political and cultural war in the South. On another front, they've attacked the institutions that provide our constitutional right to abortion. This is a systematic dismantling of our rights. Unsurprisingly, it's through the South that antis plan to bring abortion access back to the Supreme Court. Don Porter spoke to that. It really is a masterclass in long-term legislative strategy, because the first thing that you do is you look around and see which are which states are going to be friendly to the type of legislation that I'm that I'm interested in passing. And so if you start in Alabama and Georgia, you know, they would pass one or two laws. We'd see what the court challenges are. The next state could modify their laws to answer the court challenges from the previous state. And you do this, um, you know, kind of slowly so that there's not a lot of attention to this, you know, you don't declare the war on drugs. It's kind of this stealth effort until you see kind of what sticks and what works. And by the time, I can't actually speak to, you know, the the um, efforts of, because I think like most people, I was kind of not understanding that this was happening. But I think you could think of it as kind of creeping legislation happening at the state level not making its way to the federal courts. And so if, you know, it takes a while for those laws to kind of, they spread and then they're on the books and it takes a while for their impact to be felt. But by the time people start really sounding the alarms about the pervasive nature and the widespread coordinated effort, 
it's almost too late. It's like you've let the kudzu spread all over your yard and then you're you're just you're just trying to, to push things back. It's also really, really important to, to look at the map because you start with efforts to, to curtail reproductive rights in a corner of the country. And as you expand out, it's like an army. As you expand out those restrictions, it means that whole pockets of the country do not have access to, to, to uh, reproductive health services. Once you have that foothold, then you start getting more aggressive. Then you start marching towards a ban overturning Roe. You don't start with overturning Roe. You start with the chipping away and you start with doing it in so many parts of the country that then you have, in, in lawyer terms, what that means is you have different states start to have different decisions. And that is how you get a case to the Supreme Court. You have to have a conflict in the circuit courts um, that the Supreme Court feels it needs to weigh in on. So if you have Georgia and Alabama and Louisiana all saying, that these restrictions are legitimate, and then you have California and New York and other places saying they're not, that's when a case is right to go to the Supreme Court. And so with the previous court, there was there was definitely a question. Um, people thought they wouldn't quite overturn Roe, but you know it was unclear as to how far the court was going to go. That was before we lost Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Now the court looks way worse for reproductive rights. With a solid conservative majority, we can't rely on them upholding precedent anymore. So, Kate, tell me, like, because you are, you know, you have the skinny on all the legal implications. <laughs> what is freaking you out the most? I feel like there's an hour we could spend talking about just how shitty these laws are. Am I allowed to say that on the podcast? <laughs> yes. <laughs> a full profanity zone here on Ordinary Equality. You're welcome, everyone. <laughs> I think... One of the things about trap laws that is so troubling or so effective is that they're just exhausting. You know what I mean? Being on the state level, fighting these trap laws as a representative of Planned Parenthood, it was like we'd go up to Capitol Hill and every year there's all these bills, you know, and all of them are ridiculous and half of them aren't going to pass. And even if they did pass, they're not going to be constitutional. And the state is willing to spend millions of dollars fighting these laws. Why? Why? Why do they want these laws that mean nothing and don't actually do anything and just waste everyone's time and money? They do a few things, even if they're never implemented. One is they negatively stigmatize people who need abortions. And you should just have to go through a thousand hoops to do this terrible thing that you're about to do. And if your state legislature is constantly making hurdles for you to get this procedure, it really stigmatizes it. Does that cause fewer people to get abortions? No. It doesn't. But it can cause them to feel worse about it or confused. You know, Dr. Torres, who's one of the doctors we talked uh, to earlier in the season, she had to tell patients things that weren't true. So she, by law, has to tell them, I'm legally required to tell you X, Y, and Z. It is not medically accurate. So it's very confusing for a patient to have the doctor who's providing them the service tell them things that aren't true. <laughs> and also have the doctor tell them the things aren't true. So what these trap laws do, even if they're not effective, even if they're never implemented, even if they're stupid rubbish, 
is they stigmatize the procedure and they confuse people and put blocks and hurdles in front of them getting access. And so at the end of the day, it's just money well spent for them because it exhausts all of us trying to protect access. And it's so nefarious. It's so mean when you think about what these blocks create. I just remember when I was working a campaign for the Campaign for Healthy Families in South Dakota, and I went out to South Dakota twice to fight anti-choice ballot initiatives there. But what was so insidious about it was hearing from people saying, oh, I already live in a region that is far from the nearest affordable abortion provider to get to Planned Parenthood. I'll need to drive four, five, six hours to get there. And I don't have the money to pay for my gas. I don't have uh, childcare. I don't have these things. And then when I get there, I have to sleep in my car and then wait for 24 hours in my car once I get there. And what that does psychologically, financially, and psychically to people in terms of just, you know, what it does to your psyche to know that you're trying to do something for your own health and safety, something that, that nobody else should be able to determine for you except for you in partnership with your doctor and your own conscience. And then to get there after breaking the bank, probably having to borrow money from other people or going into debt to only know that for 24 hours, you will also compromise your health and safety again by having to sleep in your car. So I just I remember someone telling me that once and really having that illustrate how these laws affect people's lives, um, that they're not it sounds like 24 hours, you know, to a person of privilege just seems like not a long time, but it can be a world of time. And it can also prevent people from being able to legally access services when there are limits on those services and time limits and deadlines. Most people don't realize that trap laws exist until they need to get an abortion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, I've had people, friends who are like, okay, I need to get an abortion. I'm going to go call and do it today. And it's like, nope, that's actually not how it works. You have to go in, you have to get the counseling, you have to wait for 72 hours or 48 hours, and then you have to do X, Y, and Z. And there's only one place you can get it and all these different things. And in, unless you need the procedure, you probably are unaware of how cumbersome it actually is to get it. And all of these people putting in these laws, the vast majority of them are men, and they're never going to need to get an abortion. They're never going to have to drive to the clinic. They're never going to have to do all of these things in order to just get basic health care. And so they will never have to face the reality of what it means in the way that some of us do. So the anti-choice side has enacted a decades-long legal strategy to systematically strip us of our rights. This is just depressing. What are we going to do to fight back? Here's Talkit again. So the best defense is an offense. I think that we are, you know, making sure that people understand how important abortion care is in the lives of the people who need it. The more that folks who support access to the range of reproductive health care, including contraception, abortion, and prenatal care, and dignified labor and delivery care, and the ability to have and raise children confident that you will be able to provide, you know, food security and uh, housing, education, and medical care that will allow a child not just to survive, but to thrive. The more the people who support those things understand the power of their votes, the better we'll be. 
In addition to your vote, you can help with your wallet and your time. First of all, you can support your your nearest provider. Uh, abortion providers are just under siege. Um, they are subject to violence and the threat of violence constantly and harassment and their patients are harassed. And so um, there are really important services that volunteers provide. Um, and I thank them so much for their generosity. They help clinics, they help patients, and uh, you know they help clinics that provide abortion care feel less isolated and, um, and really rooted in their communities, right? These are the clinics that are just fighting ridiculous obstacles every day just to stay open, just to stay safe, and just to be able to provide care that people just desperately need. So one thing folks can do is find your local clinic. The National Abortion Federation, where I am now, uh, has members all over the country. We have independent clinic members, also Planned Parenthood members. Um, and so if folks want to know where they can help out, you can certainly contact the National Abortion Federation and we can let you know where your generous uh, volunteer assistance to clinics um, would be so appreciated. The National Network of Abortion Funds can help you find the right local targets for your donations. The National Abortion Federation has a hotline you can call if you need financial assistance with your abortion care. We'll put the info for both of those organizations in the show notes. All but 16 states exclude abortion from Medicaid. People across the country need help to access the care they need. It's easy to feel powerless against the anti-abortion machine. But it's important to remember that so far, we've managed to fend off the bulk of the challenge. There's a lot of work to do and a great opportunity to work together with a broad and diverse coalition. And I think one of the most important things to remember is that most of these trap laws are state laws. And so one of the most impactful things you can do is get involved in your state and local governments. And that's a lot easier than reaching someone in the U.S. House of Representatives or the Senate you can usually just call them in your state legislature. You can call your representatives. You can email them. They'll email you back. It's pretty easy to find out who they are. And these are the people who are making these trap laws in your state. But how do we reclaim the conversation and push forward together as a united front in favor of reproductive justice and abortion access for all? Next time on Ordinary Equality. We're talking about what comes next and the movement we must build together. Ordinary Equality is a Wonder Media Network production produced by Edie Allard, Grace Lynch, and Liz Smith. Our executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. Our original theme music is by Rachel Wardell. Special thanks to Janice Formichella and Taylor Williamson. We want to tell you about a podcast we think you're going to love. It's Birthful, a show created and hosted by advanced birth doula, postpartum educator, and child sleep consultant, Adriana Losada. Birthful provides informative interviews and inspiring birth stories. It covers topics including choosing a doula, mastering breastfeeding, navigating hospitals, baby sleep, and the role of partners. Adriana crafts every episode with an eye for curating information while offering real-world examples to take some of the anxiety away from a transformational experience that can be both magical and overwhelming. 
Ultimately, Birthful wants all new and expectant parents to have the empowering births and nourishing postpartum experiences that they deserve. Find it on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and listen to Birthful on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and everywhere you get your podcasts. Head to birthful.com for a full Birthful experience.